You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Okay. Hi guys. It's been uh it's been a minute. Well, I guess not. I did record the the grease bonus for last week, but you know, it's been a minute since we've done true crime since we did part 1 of Candy Mossler, which I feel like everyone must have forgotten about completely by now, but I don't want to leave it just unfinished because I do love the story. So I am finishing it today. And I have tried to record this several times and then never made it through the whole thing. And then I kind of, you know, I like to have continuity. So I want to record the whole thing at once. So we're going to try. Um, Henry, my other dog that I talk probably the least amount about, uh, has, I noticed over the weekend, he has a tooth that has gotten, must have gotten hooked either on Indiana's collar when they were playing or broke it on a toy, something. And it, his bottom front tooth has been pulled all the way straight down and is like jutting out the front of his mouth. Took him to the emergency vet this weekend. They couldn't do anything. So thankfully I have a vet appointment for him in a about 90 minutes. So we'll see if I can get this whole thing completed. Um, no sense of place or intro, but I will recap um, kind of at least what we did in part one of the Candy Mossler story. So let me let me read my little teaser overview and maybe that'll spark some of your memories. Um, so step into the glamorous world of Candy Mossler, a high society Houston socialite whose life took a dark turn when she became entangled in a forbidden romance. In this episode, we unravel the layers of intrigue surrounding Candy's luxurious lifestyle, the steamy affair that captivated Houston's elite, and the shocking night that would forever change her life. So, um, 
if you recall, or if you don't, I'm going to tell you. Uh, basically, Candy Mossler grew up very poor. Um, this story takes place in the 60s-ish, um, 50s and 60s. She And the story really begins when she meets um, the victim in our story, Jacques Mossler. He was 20 years her senior, very, very wealthy, worth around $30 million when they met and started dating. Um, and they got married. He built her a huge mansion in uh, River Oaks area of Houston. And she had kids from uh, previous from her previous marriage. And then remember Jacques went to Chicago on business and learned about these four orphans. Candy flew out, adopted them, flew them back. So now they have all these kids together. And they were supposedly great parents and, and turned like the whole kind of lavish dining area or ballroom into like a kid's playroom. Um, they, Candy and Jacques as a couple, you know, lived the high life in Houston. Um, and then we learned last time about Melvin Lane Powers, who was Candy's nephew, her sister's son. Um, and I know that nephew means one of your siblings' sons, but you know it could be nephew through marriage, and this was not. This was nephew through blood. And in the summer of 1963, they had been carrying on an affair together for quite some time. Candy and Jacques were having problems, and Jacques was traveling a lot, spending a lot of time in Miami. Candy and her nephew, who was, I believe, 20 years her junior, um, started a romance together that was ongoing. Um, Jacques eventually found out about it uh, through, you know, they had a huge staff at the mansion. And so the staff would talk and Jacques caught wind of it. Um, he he then had that confirmed by finding and reading her diary. So he wanted to divorce her. And he wanted to actually sue her nephew for ruining his marriage. But if he did either of those things, it you know it would ruin his reputation. Um, and if he was the one who filed for divorce, Candy would get half of everything. Whereas if she was the one who filed for divorce, she only got $200,000, which is still a lot of money, especially back then. But... You know, he doesn't want to get, that's a lot less than giving away half of his $33 million estate, which would be worth about $300 million today. So they decide instead to officially get divorced, they decide to separate. Candy was going to stay at the mansion in Houston. Jacques went to his condo in Key Biscayne, Florida. He gave her $5,700 a month to kind of maintain the house, take care of the kids. Um, and now that Jacques was gone, Candy and Melvin could kind of carry on freely with their love affair, and they did. But it, at the end of June 1964, um, school was out. Candy took the kids to visit Jacques in Key Biscayne. And they were going to stay for a week. And one night, Candy at 1 a.m. woke the kids and said, Come with me. We have to run some errands. I have to 
mail some letters and I also, you know, I need to go by the hospital because she had migraines. She did suffer from really bad migraines. So at like one o'clock in the morning, she wakes up all her kids, loads them into the car. They go out and run errands. They go get burgers at a diner and she goes to the hospital to have some type of treatment for her migraine. Around 4.30 in the morning, they head back to the condo and to their horror, when they walk in, they find Jacques covered in blood, lying in a pool of blood, in, on the floor, motionless. Uh, it turned out that he had been stabbed 39 times in and around his heart and lungs before being bludgeoned with a, a blunt object, which I think they believe it was like a, a big glass decorative swan that was there. So that's kind of where we left off. Um, you know, say I talking about that he had been murdered and that based on, I mean, cops I'm assuming are anxious to solve any and all murders but based on the the elite kind of status and prominence of the Mosslers this was like they needed to figure this out and do it fast um so just also to uh kind of recalibrate where we were I'm not sure if that's the right word to use but um at the time that all this was occurring Jacques was in his late 60s, Candy was just barely 50, and Mel was about 28 years old. And the murder occurred on June 29th, 1964. So that's where we are right now. So the police did find what they believed or hoped would be the murderer's fingerprints at the scene. Uh, But CSI type things weren't as quick back then as they are now. So it was going to take several days to process the fingerprints and then try to link them to someone. Um, So during this time, law enforcement was really trying to avoid any of this information getting leaked out to the media. I mean, there was a media storm around this very rich, prominent couple. You know, their, their whole story is very fascinating. And then throw in the kind of love affair, which... I don't think at this point was like public, public knowledge, but there were whispers and rumors. Um, so the the press was all over this and it was really difficult for law enforcement to kind of keep any and everything that they were discovering out of the press. Um, you know, I mean, a notable socialite, a prominent businessman um, and her nephew lover, like it's the perfect story. They didn't. They weren't able to keep it out of the press for too long. Uh, tons of media outlets and newspapers uh, wanted to kind of break the story. The Houston Chronicle um, had a headline that said, Houston millionaire stabbed to death. Miami News said, millionaire banker slain on Key Biscayne. And there were plenty of others. Um, so media coverage is, is pretty quickly blowing up. And police are scrambling to try and piece together any ideas or theories on what might have happened that night. And while police are doing this, Candy is preparing for Jacques' funeral. It happened pretty quickly. So it was the 29th that he was murdered. The funeral took place on July 3rd in Miami. Candy and the kids were seated front and center with Candy weeping quietly and and really doing a great job of fulfilling the role of, of kind of grieving widow and mother. Um, there were definitely... Uh, some naysayers, though. There were people who wondered if her kind of display of grief was 100% sincere, especially because they were, Jacques and Candy were separated. Now, that's not to say that if you separate from your partner, you you wouldn't be devastated if they died. But Candy had 
seemingly been very happy without Jacques and was madly in love with somebody else. After the funeral, Jacques was flown to D.C. where he was laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. So as this investigation got very quickly underway, police were, of course, anxious to interview this, you know, the grieving widow. Generally, you always look to the spouse. Now that I know that's more common when it's um, a woman who's murdered, you look to their male spouse. But nonetheless, they were still anxious to talk to, to Candy. So once Candy was speaking to investigators, one of the first things she explained to them was that she noticed Jacques' wallet was gone, a stack of $100 bills from the bathroom counter were gone, and her gold and diamond wristwatch was also missing. So her theory that she floated was this was a burglary gone wrong. She also told investigators that her husband had, you know, accumulated a good amount of adversaries over the years, ranging from rival bankers, uh, angry former employees or disgruntled customers. Um, You know, he ran basically a a lot of his business was was like a repo business. He, He was repossessing people's vehicles, appliances, all kinds of stuff, in addition to plenty of other um, businesses and endeavors that he had. But that one in particular, or those, you know, those upset people. You're taking their their car, their appliances, their homes. Um, and law enforcement didn't, you know, didn't disagree with Candy that this this could be the case. So they they kind of dove into his business connections, and she was right. He had a ton of enemies. Um, his company had seized thousands of vehicles and appliances and initiated mortgage foreclosures. Um, and he, he operated as a meticulous and kind of principled businessman, but he, he had no empathy or sympathy or kindness to the people who he was, uh, repossessing things from. So he was, he, he wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong or unfair or illegal, certainly, in these instances, but he showed no remorse and that angered and upset people even more. But police couldn't find anything there. There was really nothing. Yes, he had a lot of enemies and people who were angry, but nothing that made sense for this murder. Um, What they really believed is that this was a crime of passion because he was stabbed 39 times before being bludgeoned. And so they told, uh, you know, Candy, this this wasn't just a murder. This was like a slaying. This was an, not an execution, but I mean, this this was passionate and angry. And that, you, that often suggests, um, you know, an emotional or sexual or romantic tie between the assailant and the victim or familial. Uh, so everyone's, of course, going to look at Candy after the police come out with this. And once the police told her this, she she really quickly kind of rewound her story from the burglary or the pissed off employees or customers. And she said that she actually had heard a lot of rumors that suggested that while uh, Jacques was staying in or visiting Florida over the recent years, he would often invite young men that he had met on the beach up to his apartment Um and she said that and, and her what she was insinuating was for sex. So uh, that was not very eloquently put. But she also told police that when her and the kids were, were that week on Key Biscayne, 
her husband received multiple calls from a man that she described as having feminine tones while still being a man. Um, and so now Candy, you know, she's retracted from the the burglary or the disgruntled employee customer thing. And now she is telling police, you know, due to my late husband's secretive life, it's a real possibility that one of these alleged lovers murdered him because he was either tired of being kind of kept in the closet, the relationship having to be quiet, or the fact that Jacques had multiple lovers. And this this seemed feasible, possible to police. They weren't going to rule it out. But when they discovered that Jacques wasn't the only one leading a secretive life, um, her theory of a lover turned murderer kind of began to fade into the background. Because while there were rumors around Houston about Candy and her nephew and their kind of torrid love affair, torrid love affair, uh, investigated, there was no concrete evidence of this. Investigators didn't have anything or necessarily even know about these rumors. But when they did find out about this almost two-year romantic relationship that Candy had had with her nephew, um, I was trying to think of the word blood relative nephew, um, and that they discovered all the passionate love letters between the two of them, um, witness accounts of, of, you know, trying to be discreet but not really doing that, uh, rendezvous at various locations, of course, the family mansion, but also their the ranch that the family owned and the beach house in Galveston. Um, so this newfound kind of information for investigators compelled them to reassess Candy and Melvin. There was a huge shadow of suspicion upon them now. Uh, they, you know, initially appeared as grieving family members. Now they were potential suspects. And the investigators wanted to re-examine their, their roles in all of this. They still also were not going to rule out all the other theories. So it's it maybe it was still a burglary gone wrong. Maybe it was a disgruntled employee or former client. Or maybe it was one of Jacques' alleged male lovers. Or maybe it was his own wife. And that was kind of what many of the investigators felt was the most plausible here. There wasn't anything at this point. They didn't have the fingerprints back yet. They didn't know, you know, the, who whose blood was where. They didn't have all the witness accounts. So at this point, we're just a couple days in. You know, it seemed reasonable, but there was nothing um, concrete and then they discovered Jacques's diary. He also kept a diary. And he had written multiple times about how he feared for his life. Um, he documented that he believed Candy and Melvin wanted to kill him for his money. And he actually wrote, quote, if Mel and Candace don't kill me first, I'll have to kill them. Seems like maybe they did kill him first. Um <clears throat> And then over the next few days, some in addition to the diary and, and just kind of the suspicions of these two possibly being behind this, some really damning evidence came to light. <clears throat> Turned out that Mel was in Miami the night of the murder. His fingerprints were found in Jacques' apartment where Candy and the kids were staying. They were also found in a car 
that was similar to one allegedly seen driving away from the condo that night. Um, A witness neighbor saw a white Chevrolet spotted at the murder scene and driving away that night. And Candy had rented Melvin a white Chevrolet to drive while he was in Miami. Uh, Police found that car at the Miami airport where it had apparently been parked at 5.19 a.m. on June 29th, just several hours after Jacques' murder. And right before, Melvin boarded a flight back to Houston. Uh, There was also flecks of blood and bloodstains in the car. Initially, they could only match the blood, some of these bloodstains to um, a blood type that matched Jacques' blood type. So there's not, at this point, we're not dealing with like DNA. I mean, it is DNA, but we don't have the kind of testing in, you know, the 60s that we do today. So they could test the blood and understand that it was the same blood type as Jacques, but little more than that. Uh, Furthermore, this is evidence. I mean, this is some concrete evidence, although everything I read said that it is, um, that the evidence was actually circumstantial evidence, which I found interesting. I mean, fingerprints, bloodstains, I guess, you know, it was, Melvin was their nephew. He could have it's not like so far-fetched that he was visiting um, Candy and the kids or even Jock because he had worked for Jock. Um, Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. But it seems more than circumstantial to me. Anyways, then also this is circumstantial. Uh, It was coincidental that that night that Jacques was murdered, Candy and all of the children happened to not be there. Like they had been there for several days at this point and that happened to be the night that they, she woke the kids at 1 a.m. and took them out for several hours. Um, It was also discovered that the two hours that Candy was at the emergency room getting treated for her migraine, there were three phone calls from a man that came into the nurse's station asking for Candy. Uh, They didn't know who it was. I don't think that was ever discovered, but it was, it just added to kind of the oddity of all of this. So Jacques' diary, the blood, the fingerprints, the car, the fact that Melvin was in town, the fact that Candy and the kids were out of the uh, condo, you know, all eyes were on Candy and Melvin. They were very strong suspects at this point. Um, And the theory was that it was Candy's idea And she had Melvin carry out the murder and, you know, so that they could be together and have all of Jacques' money. So 
once everything that I just talked about, that evidence kind of came to light, which was over a couple days, Melvin was quickly arrested. He was actually arrested on July 3rd, the day of Jacques' funeral. And so while he was dealing with that, Candy, on the other hand, left town and went for treatment of her migraines um, and several undisclosed medical conditions to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She got two adjacent apartments um, for her and the children and was there for apparently months um, getting ongoing treatment. At the same time that Candy was in uh, Minnesota getting treated for her her migraines and undisclosed medical conditions, you know, investigators in both Texas and Florida are working to piece together evidence to use not only against Melvin, but to hopefully arrest Candy as well. Um, and every single kind of thread of evidence that they followed appeared to point to either Melvin or Candy or both. And at this point, months and months have gone by and Melvin has been arrested, Candy hasn't. Now the newspapers, magazines, the press are starting to kind of push for for the indictment of Candy Mosler. You know, bits and pieces of evidence and, and the investigation are leaking out over this time and people are growing like restless. They want to see Candy uh, arrested or at least that's what the newspapers were printing. And on July 20th, 1965, they got what they wanted, and an indictment was issued for Candy Mosler. She was in Rochester still, um, and she opted to fly to Miami and surrender voluntarily, so according to her, to avoid the potential humiliation of an unexpected arrest, meaning she wanted to be able to control that situation and, I'm guessing, be camera ready. Um, because she was accompanied by a private nurse and had a, had a wristband from the Mayo Clinic. And when she arrived at Miami International Airport, there was a state police commander. It was a very simple, quiet arrest, um, but there was a lot of press at the airport. And Candy looked flawless, greeted them with her like trademark perfect smile, um, and she kind of had the arrest that she she wanted, that she got to orchestrate, that looked exactly how she wanted it to look. Uh, around this time, Time Magazine ran a, a rather kind of snarky piece on the, on the case uh, and described Mosler as being kind of lippy um, and lissom, which now I'm, I'm doing this, I should have looked this word up. I don't know what that word means. And I'm not going to cut this out because I, I meant to look it up, but I didn't. So the the Time Magazine article described her as lissom and lippy. Um, it also highlighted that Mel and Candy were both released on $50,000 bonds. And the end of the story, the writer said, quote, while Mel discreetly headed for Atlanta, Candace emerged from jail as other inmates showered her with hearty obscenities. Smiling and blowing kisses, the irrepressible widow jounced off to Houston. It promises to be some trial. Uh, and I thought this was really interesting. <laughs> she was always so camera, picture perfect, camera ready, composed. I mean, even when she's being arrested for her her husband's murder, late husband's murder. Um, several of the reporters, either when she was brought in, like when she was arrested or when she was released on bond, that's unclear, confronted her, you know, with accusing her of adultery, incest, murder. And she turned, offered a perfect smile and said, well, 
nobody's perfect, <laughs> which I think is just fantastic. Um, it took about 18 months before the trial got underway. And at this point, as you can imagine, it had become like this heightened, highly anticipated, sensationalized event. And it was expected to be so kind of lurid that the judge wouldn't allow anyone under the age of 21 into the courtroom. And this uh, this kind of circus of a trial began in Miami on January 17th, 1966. Mel and Candy were going to be tried together for murder. And each of them had enlisted kind of premier best of the best legal representation. Uh, Candy enlisted the formidable duo from Houston's legal elite, Clyde Woody and Marion Rosen. Um, And Melvin secured the defense of Houston's, again, top tier lawyers, Percy Foreman and William F. Walsh. Um, They were both esteemed for their kind of courtroom prowess. And according to Foreman, he had defended a thousand accused murderers and eight in 10 had been acquitted. I guess he's giving like a ratio there, not saying how many out of the thousand. Anyways, so what, 800 had been acquitted out of a thousand. Oof, I should cut that out, but I'm not gonna. Um, Again, that was according to his count. So the defense lawyers managed to select an all-male jury, which I think would just never happen today, I'm assuming. Um, That's a good lookup list, though, that I should write down. All-male jury. Uh, Because they thought, you know, Candy is, she, she flirts with the camera. She flirts with press, like, she's going to win over any man sitting on this jury. And so the 12 men that were selected varied in age, uh, spanning from 25 years to 63 years old. Nine of them were white. Three of them were black. Uh, Seven identified as Protestant, two as Catholics, and two as Jewish. And they elected a foreman. So kind of, I don't know if that still happens today, but kind of like a, the, you know, the person in charge. Um, or the speaker of for all of them. And it was a 47-year-old hairdresser, and he said he doesn't have any faith. He doesn't have a religion. Uh, most of the jurors were blue-collar workers, bus drivers, construction workers, aircraft mechanic, letter carrier, lumberman, and truck driver. Now, prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. Um, they contended that that Melvin and Candy had plotted Jacques' murder to get his fortune, and continue on their incestuous love affair. And the prosecution had a, a handful of witnesses. They they were not lacking in witnesses. Um, and many of these witnesses testified that since 1964, Candy had been in conflict with Jacques. Um, she was angry that he chose to relocate his business office from Houston to Miami and that she would move it back to Miami if she were to assume control. Now, I don't think that that's the only reason she was upset. They were having problems and she was having an affair. So it was obviously more than just that, but that's what the prosecution presented. Um, The prosecution called several uh, convicts to the stand. Arthur Grimsley was an Arkansas convict. Um, He was a prosecution witness and testified that Melvin had offered him money to do away with the old mooch, which is what Melvin called Jacques. 
uh, prosecution also called Billy Frank Mulvey, a Texas convict who was serving time for theft. He testified that Candy gave him a $7,000 down payment in 1962 to kill her husband, but he spent the money and never carried out the plan. Um, there was, I believe, two other inmates who also testified for the prosecution. Um I read this wrong earlier. And the defense also presented testimony from inmates, different inmates than the prosecution, saying that um, Billy Frank Mulvey, he was a habitual criminal, and that he was supposed to get a life sentence for his most recent conviction. But because he was testifying, he got a five-year sentence. That's, you know, that's all kind of hearsay. Also with the defense, um, they had a kind of a big task. They had to persuade this jury to overlook a clear motive, bloodstains, palm prints, fingerprints, and all of these love letters, among other things. Um, but Percy Foreman, the defense, one of the defense lawyers, he did a pretty good job of this. He was undermining all of the circumstantial evidence. Um, and he cast a ton of doubt on the credibility of the witnesses, which makes sense. I mean, you're having convicted felons um, on the stand. That's, you know, how credible are they? Maybe very. I don't know. Um, and he he put forward the theory that Jacques was killed at the hands of a jealous male lover. Um, they They also used their opening statements to the defense to kind of zero in on on issues, on flaws with the evidence, even before the prosecution presented it. So this was just opening statements. Um, you know, they said, yeah, Melvin's palm print was found in the Key Biscayne apartment, but so were 26 other finger and palm prints that weren't identified. So what's to say that it was him? I mean, to be fair, like, he has a huge motive, so of course it's him. But... I don't know. This lawyer apparently works magic. Um, Percy also, Percy Foreman, who was Mel's attorney, uh, didn't call any witnesses to the stand. Now, I think I said a few minutes ago that the defense presented testimony from other inmates, but that was Candy's defense. Um Mel's defense and the guy who kind of seemed to be the superstar of this trial and, and came out, you know, as the most, there's the most information about him, Mel's attorney, Percy Foreman, the one who said, you know, I or I uh, defended a thousand murderers and 800 walked free, which is terrifying, by the way. Um, so, so he didn't call any witnesses to the stand, which was a, a huge stark contrast to the the DA who had like I said, several questionable witnesses. Um, Foreman instead placed a lot of emphasis on his opening statement and his closing statement, which according to many people who were there, uh, it, it was a very persuasive closing statement. And this was interesting to me. Prosecutors apparently usually get the last word in a trial, but Foreman, Mel's defense attorney, was allowed to give the final word under Florida law because he had called no witnesses. And I find this incredibly hard to believe, but this is what I found. 
He went on to speak. His closing statement was four hours and 58 minutes. I mean, I don't know how that can be persuasive. If I had to listen to somebody talk for five hours straight, you you know, you'd lose me after the first hour, I would think, um, which is why I find that hard to believe. Uh, but part of this closing statement was um, he wanted to to trump the juror's shock about you know the incestuous relationship between Candy and Mel, which the prosecution really laid into heavily. Um, he wanted to kind of trump that shock that they were feeling by introducing another detail, the fact that Jacques was a homosexual and this forced his poor wife to seek companionship elsewhere. So this trial went on for two months of testimony and legal deliberation. And then it was handed over to the 12-member jury in early March. They were at a standstill for hours and then for the whole first day and then into the second. But after two days, they had a verdict. They acquitted both Candy and Mel. Allegedly, Candy expressed her gratitude by walking up and kissing each juror. Um, This was surprising, to say the least. But uh, a lot of people felt this was because the prosecution leaned so heavily on the testimony of of convicts, of convicted felons, um, and that the circumstantial evidence, all the handprints, fingerprints, all that, it, it failed to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which blows my mind. Like, to me, this is like, of course they did it. Um, but according to these jurors, they did not. Uh, and it, it was a smart move by the defense attorneys to keep their clients from testifying so they didn't have to answer any questions directly about their relationship or potentially kind of sway the jury to think anything you know else about their relationship it was just what coming from somebody else it was just coming from the prosecution the defense obviously avoided talking about their relationship as much as possible um at a uh, the courtroom spectacle concluded with mel and candy sharing a kiss on the lips before driving away together in a gold cadillac and at, at a victory party after the trial, Candy was asked if she and Mel might marry soon. And she said, of course not. Which is hilarious because like, what do you mean of course not? You've been sleeping with him for two years. He's your nephew. What does it matter if you get married at this? I don't know. It just blows my mind. Um, and after the not guilty verdict, the police never looked into other suspects. They kind of just thought they had exhausted this and, oh, well, I, again, do not understand that. Uh, so what happened to Candy and Mel after this? Well, they lived together for a year or two in the um, man- Candy's mansion outside of Houston before they eventually kind of drifted apart and went their own separate ways. Um Now, Jacques had left a million-dollar trust fund for each of his children, um, his own, Candy's kids, and their adopted kids. But Candy, nonetheless, got most of that $33 million estate. And she apparently turned this, you know, 
parlayed this into various business investments and turned that money into a, a even bigger fortune over the next 10 years. One, this is just an interesting tidbit, I thought. In 1966, she was the silent partner of her good friend, singer Judy Garland, um, in Weatherby Records, which was named after Candy's maiden name. Uh, Garland said she would be recording for Weatherby Records and also signing other performers. Apparently, this never really went anywhere, um, much likely due to the the negative press about Candy being on trial for murder. (laughs) Uh, And... Judy Garland went on to sign with ABC Records instead. Another interesting tidbit. In 1971, Candy married a man named Barnett W. Garrison, an electrical contractor in Houston. He was 33 and she was claiming to be 50, but apparently was actually 57. I think that she she was never upfront about her age, like ever, from from a very young age, she was always saying that she was younger. So I'm not sure that anyone really knows her exact age. Um, So she married this electrical contractor. They lived in her River Oaks mansion. And one night, about a year after they married, he came home drunk. They had been fighting earlier. He came home drunk and he had been locked out. And he didn't like that. So he tried to climb up to her third story bedroom window and apparently fell, and I'm like using air quotes if you're not watching this on Zoom or on uh, Patreon or YouTube, because, come on, one dead husband, now another, and honestly, I have to go back through my notes because it was a while ago. I feel like, didn't her previous husband also die? I could be totally wrong about that. I'll have to look. Um, He didn't, he wasn't murdered. Actually, let me take that back. He uh, suffered disabling injuries. I believe he broke his back and was somewhat paralyzed. I'm not sure you can be somewhat paralyzed. I think you're like paralyzed or you're not. I think he was. And then she divorced him in 1975. Um, So they were married for a couple years. Uh, And a year later, Candy sadly met her own demise. On October 26, 1976, she died of allegedly an accidental overdose of a migraine medication in her penthouse suite at the, I never know how to say this hotel name, Fountain Blue. I really want to say Fontaine Blue, but I know it's not. Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida. Uh, most accounts say she was 56. That wouldn't make sense if when she married her, you know, Barnett electrical contractor, if she was actually 57 then, that well, she wasn't 56 when she died, obviously. A lot of accounts said she was 56. Other ones say 62. Again, she was never honest about her age. So she died in her late 50s, early 60s, you know, from a supposed accidental overdose. Um, at that point, she was worth over $100 million. But that Hailed in comparison to how well Melvin did, on and off Melvin did well after him and Candy kind of separated ways and and he went on to um, to pursue continue pursuing a career as a real estate developer. He had a very notable project in the Houston area. He had two 19 or 20 story buildings called the Arena Towers office buildings and an adjacent uh, 2,800 seat arena theater. Um. 
1979, he was apparently worth $200 million. But that that kind of financial life of his, it, it went through, I found something I like the, the way this is said, it, it went through boom and bust cycles. So, you know, in the early 1980s, he bought a apparently uh, 142-foot yacht and then added an additional 23 feet to that yacht. Um, it was said to be one of the largest in the Western Hemisphere. He apparently cut it in half and put in a new midsection with a jacuzzi, underwater viewing ports, and a mirrored ceiling. Mirrored ceiling. Sorry, I said that weird. Um you know, but then apparently he filed for bankruptcy in 1983 because of the oil boom. It then turned into an oil bust. Um, his money was up and down, apparently. And and really, last I could find that he was alive and well and not bankrupt in his mid-60s, but couldn't find much on him uh, after that. And that was a very quick conclusion to Candy Mossler. Um, and I, that probably felt a little rushed, not going to lie. It was a little rushed because I have to take Henry to the vet and I didn't want to take the chance that if I have to put him in for surgery, then I was never going to get this recorded and published today. So I just had to get it done now. And, um, and the next episode that comes out will not be me talking about a breakup or grease or anything. It will be with Jenna and it will be true crime and it will not be rushed. We're going to do our sense of place and banter and all that on Monday. And then we have a true crime on Tuesday. So with that, um, I will, as always, say thank you for listening and thank you to everyone who has um, kind of stuck by through all of this up and down. I feel like it's been dramatic for a, a moment here between the breakup and then the attack and and uh, and so we've been off course with the true crime. We got a little away from what this podcast started as and I totally understand if that has pissed people off or annoyed them. Um, it's, you know, I definitely get that you become attached to a podcast and then it changes or shifts or stops coming out regularly. And that's so frustrating. So I do apologize. Um, my goal is to like, no more to have no, more, <laughs> no more drama in my life. A, and to also, even if there is to have it affect my ability to, to slap on a smile and record this, um, to have it affect that less. So if you are still listening and don't hate me or us or what this podcast became briefly, then thank you. And, uh, yeah, we're gonna get back on track and this getting this part two out was step one. So, um, I realize it's late and long overdue, but here it is. I'm not going to apologize anymore because I'm trying to stop doing that so much. Um, okay. I This is an odd thing to say, but I'm going to say it. If you are listening 
and you know anyone or work in or have any kind of experience, knowledge, connections with um, like people in the tech world or the app making world, um, will you please email or DM or reach out to me? I have some questions. And that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Well, thank you guys for listening. I look very much forward to being back on here with Jenna, although we probably won't have video because it's really easy to do the video when it's just me. Um, With both of us, it's a little trickier, but I'll see what I can do. And um, yeah, hope everyone is having a fantastic week. Uh, This will be out maybe before I go to the vet. I don't know. We'll see how quickly I can do this. Uh, Okay, guys. um, Check out our Patreon. Follow us on socials, although I've been real shitty at that lately. And uh, I will see you next week with a new episode. I'm looking at my Zoom screen. It says AI companion. I'm scared to click it. What does that mean? I don't know. Uh, Okay, that's it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Death by Southwest is hosted by Jenna Schneider and Margot Carmichael. Executive produced by Margot Carmichael. Produced by Jenna Schneider. Audio editing and sound design by Margot Carmichael. Music by Soundstripe. And a special thanks to Edward R. Murrow for letting us borrow his famous sign-off phrase, good night and good luck. <laughs>